All right, so here we go. This is going to be uh, Luke session one. This is uh, we're titling it "Planned." It's God's promises point to His redemptive plan for His creation. That's kind of where this is going. This morning, we'll be in Luke chapter one, verses thirteen through twenty-five. Eventually, uh, we got to obviously start out with. Uh, some background as we uh, look at this book. And we're going to look at it primarily independent of the other Gospels. So we're going we're gonna to focus on what's in Luke, just the first nine chapters. We'll come back another day to get, the, get more of the book. Um, and as we look at Luke himself, uh, we'll start there this morning. So we'll start with the, the man, Luke. Who was he? Doctor. Doctor. Yep, we got that one. Doctor. He's Greek. He's Greek. Yes, he is. Which makes him? Gentile. A Gentile. So there's the uh, top three. He was a Gentile, doctor, and he was Greek. Actually, we believe that he was born in Antioch. Uh, we believe he was from Antioch, that that's where he was from. What else can we say about him? He was a historian. The book of Luke is written in the same manner that um, the historian Eusebius uh, and um, Josephus, the way they recorded history. They were historians. They are well-known historians. He uses the same format, the same language um, in a lot of ways as he's recording it. Luke is, if he's not a professional historian, he certainly knows how to record history. He's read history or whatnot. He's educated. Um, he's not, uh, yeah, the, his level of writing is better than that of the other apostles who wrote the other gospels. We also uh, know that he's a companion of Paul's. When he writes the book of Acts, he, the way Greek works, the pronouns become part of the word. And there are places where he's recording Luke or uh, Paul's journeys and Luke is writing it and he refers to them as we. He uses the we verbs. Uh, we did this and we did that. So he's a companion of Paul's. He traveled with him. Actually, he was assigned ministries by Paul in Philippi. When they were chased out, Luke stayed behind in order to continue Paul's ministry there because he was Greek. He was a Gentile. He could stay there, whereas Paul, being Jewish, was run off. Luke stayed behind and continued. Um, we see that uh, Luke, according to tradition... Uh, lived to be about 84 years old. Church tradition says that he lived as a single 
to 84 and eventually died in Botia, Greece at 84 years of age. We're not sure about how old he was when he wrote these Gospels. We don't know um, how old he was when he traveled with Paul exactly. Um, It is thought that having been born in Antioch, he grew up in Antioch and likely may have been one of the converts in the church in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were set aside to be missionaries from, that he may have been there when the first missionary journey went off and became part of the team when Paul returned and gave his report and then set off on his journey. We know that Luke was with Paul uh, at the end of his life, that everybody else had abandoned him, the others that ministered with him, or were sent on assignment. We know that Silas and Timothy were on assignment elsewhere in Paul's right in his writings to them, telling them to come quickly that he would be executed soon. That Luke was still with him. So that that's who, excuse me, that's who Luke is. So Luke is a, he's kind of the background uh, character in the story of the the beginnings of the church. He's just kind of always there somewhere in the background, watching, writing, taking notes, producing this gospel. This gospel is considered to have been one of the last written, if not the last. There's question whether John wrote his gospel before Luke wrote his, uh, because John seems to write... um, John writes and fills in stories that nobody else covers. Most of John is not in the other three Gospels. That's why it's not considered one of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, because John seems to be filling in. But John's also got another, a different point to make than anybody else. Uh, and we'll talk more about Luke's point here in a second. He's now, so that's who the man is, the author. Let's talk about the recipients. Who's the recipients of Luke's Gospel? Who knows? Well, yes, he does write to the Greeks. But that's even more specific than that. Theopolis. Theopolis. He starts... Yes. Theophilus is likely his uh, owner. It is considered that Luke was probably a slave because most uh, doctors like that, they, they weren't freelance like they are nowadays. They were trained. They, were, they belonged to a household. Uh, and that was their, what they did. I mean, you get some that make food. They're the cooks. You got those that tend the sheep. Craftsmen. They were often part of households, as we've talked about uh, with uh, the Old Testament, particularly the families were large. Uh, the Greeks would have slaves, and they would train them to do what they needed them to do. And it is thought that Theophilus was probably a wealthy Greek of some sort, a merchant or whatever, had a large household, and that he had been a, um, not necessarily a believer, but had started out as a, a Judaite. He was not, he probably did not go through the whole process of becoming a Jew, uh, because that would require circumcision in all that. So he wasn't a proselyte, but he was likely one that he practiced and 
followed the Torah and, the, and all that and was wanting to be more than that and then likely heard Jesus at some point. And Luke uh, writes this. We're not sure whether or not he was actually sent to go and find it. Like we said, he writes as a historian, so it may have been part of his schooling, his training, um, and may have kept like the family history for all we know. Uh, I mean, libraries, if you remember the Greeks, they, they built the Library of Alexandria, one of the greatest libraries that ever existed. They, they had a love for knowledge, and wealthy households would have librarians. They, they would have, that would be uh, a very distinguishing thing to have a large library and somebody that would copy the scrolls so they would borrow them and make copies for their library and stuff. And so, I mean, that was a prestigious thing. Uh, it's likely that, that that may have been also Luke's duties. I mean, given that his, he could have been trained that way. The recipients were also the Greek cultured people. Uh, yes, they were probably Greeks, but there were a lot of Greek Jews as well. They weren't Jewish, but they were by birth Jews. Uh, and so they would have found a lot of material in Luke that would have been uh, persuasive to them. They were Jews that had walked away from their faith for whatever reason. Uh, wealth is usually, you know, they, they wanted to make money. And so it was advantageous to be more Greek and stuff, and uh, they would have found this book to be very insightful. So that's who Luke is. That's the recipients. As we look at this book, any comments or questions? No? Good enough. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about its purpose and theme. Um, the whole purpose of this book is to instruct readers about Jesus with certainty of what they knew. That's what Luke tells us. Theophilus knew about Jesus. But understand that as the church spread and grew, there were a lot of people roaming around proclaiming to be somebody of importance uh, in this new religion, and they weren't always telling the way it was. And you had the Judaizers who were doing everything they could to make everybody become Jewish so that they could uh, gain control of them uh, by making them become Jews and then be under their thumb. And there was a lot of that. And so Luke writes this and he, uh, he's very specific, very detailed in his book about them. He starts off with understanding, and these are the themes. Jesus was the God-man. Uh, this is an interesting concept, uh, that God could be human and God at the same time. And it is one of the, the not just the themes of Luke, but it is kind of the driving purpose of his book. We see it with Jesus' birth. It was a result of God's supernatural miracles through the Virgin Mary. Throughout Jesus' words and deeds, they attest to his oneness with God while being a man, while being human. 
At the same time, Luke frequently quotes Jesus' self-reference as the Son of Man, demonstrating Jesus' identity with humanity. And so Luke merges the two. We're all very familiar with the Gospel of John. John's whole purpose is to show Jesus as God. And that's why he starts out with going all the way back before creation. Here's Jesus. Luke says, here's Jesus with the virgin birth. And he starts there and says, see, he's a man, but he's also God. And so Luke is trying to marry the two together. The other two Gospels deal primarily with Jesus as a servant that he came to serve, and that he was, the other was the king of the Jews, as Matthew writes it, and is trying to explain that this is the Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for. Um, we also see that Luke does spend some time proving that Jesus was the Messiah. He records miracles all through. We see his compassion. He gives testimony to his divine nature and his lordship. Um, His lordship includes that he is lord over the Sabbath. He's the lord over sickness. Luke will cover his lord over the satanic and eventually lord over death as he deals with this. But again, he's dealing with it as he's also man, that whole God-man thing. Other themes include preparation for the future. Uh, Jesus is going to train and teach and tell the apostles um, what to do in the future that will give birth to the church. The kingdom of God is is one of the themes that Jesus deals with. We find that in his presence, we we are found near the kingdom of God. That's one of the quotes that Luke uses often. The disciples are sent out to preach the kingdom, Um, but we find Luke doesn't include the kingdom parables or not many of them. Not like Matthew. Matthew, uh, that's where we find the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the kingdom. Luke doesn't record that for us um, because that's a very Jewish perspective. And again, Luke is writing to the Greeks, but one of the the things that he wants to make is that the kingdom is available to all people. That's a distinction of Luke's. He's writing to a Gentile audience. He's writing for Greeks. There is a kingdom. It's coming. And the Jews were waiting for that. And Matthew writes about that. And he records some of that. But it's that the kingdom is not just for the Jews. It's also for us, the believers. He emphasizes um, statements and deeds that demonstrate the kingdom Um, is for those who repent and believe. And lastly, uh, Luke will cover the themes of future judgment and urgency. Luke makes it exceedingly clear to his audience. People who are not willing to make an irrevocable decision to follow Jesus are not worthy of that kingdom. Which that's a pretty broad, pretty uh, bold statement that even our world today isn't necessarily willing to make, unfortunately. If you're just good enough, you can be saved. Uh, that's uh, kind of the just mantra. Of t- huh? Just one way? That's mm. not fair. It's not loving. That's yeah. judgmental. Yeah, well, Luke, Luke covers that well. 
So comments or questions on these, these themes that we find, the purpose of the book. And we'll see that as, as we look at these first nine chapters that drives it. All right. We'll jump to the outline for this book. You can see I've got it up here for future reference. Uh, the first four chapters, preparation for ministry as Jesus is beginning to minister. Uh, Luke's going to spend four chapters, you know, taking us from his birth to the point that he's ready to start. About halfway through chapter four, Jesus will begin ministering in Galilee, and that'll cover through chapter nine. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus has got specific me, uh, ministry in Judea and Perea, and that's where we're gonna, going to pick up where the ideas of Luke writing about the Gentiles are acceptable, that they can enter the kingdom as he's dealing with those in chapters 9 through 19. Uh, that's the bulk of the book, uh, is, uh, is this idea of Jesus' ministry in Judea and Perea, where he's confronting the um, Pharisees over their exclusivity and dealing with <clears throat> other Jews, or not Jews, um, Gentiles. Jesus de deals with some Gentiles. Um, there's a centurion that... Uh, has more faith than anybody in, in, of the Jews. And Jesus makes comment of it. Uh, Luke records all of that, showing this whole concept. And then finally, we get the climax of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem from 19 to 24, where he will show up, preach, do the Last Supper, do death and resurrection. This is an easy book to outline, just four, four sections. All right. Now, if you will turn to your timeline, we'll point out a few things uh, in it. Give me a second so that I can get the bigger copy I have of it myself. I, I, the problem is, is we opened that wall. I've considered it. We'll just leave it with slits for each breaking point there. Oh, I don't know. I might be able to do that. Yeah. I might be able to pull that one off. I'll have to consider that. Um, if you notice at the very top, this long line, uh, that's China. Imperial China is now what? You say it like it's only like Donald Trump. China. 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 <laughs> I don't know. Um, we, this is where... You can see 221 BC, or yeah, BC is when Imperial China starts, the, the, where they begin to pool all the little nations that make up China together. And uh, that's going to last until um, 1912. <laughs> so th this is a time period, um, well, really, it, it's a time period of savage wars in China as the emperor begins to consolidate what will become all of China into one thing. They also had a lot of wars with those that were just on the outskirts, Mongolia and, and things like that. But this is that, this is that time period, imperial China. Um, you can see 
This is uh, the apocryphal books, those books that are not part of our Bible, unless you have a Catholic Bible, um, that has the section of the apocrypha. Most of those are written, as you can see, uh, in that time period. You can see this is Jesus' birth right here, somewhere in this three-year period. We don't have an exact date. And the reason we know that it's this time period is if you look right beneath it, it says the imperial census in the territory of Herod's, um, 6 BC to 4 BC. That's when the Roman Senate told them to take the census. It took them three years to do it. So we don't know exactly when Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem uh, and do pay their census tax. We know they do it. We don't know which year it was. So that we don't know exactly when Jesus was born. We just know that, that it, it had to be within that three-year uh, period. You can see here, Herod actually begins building the temple uh, over here in 20 BC. And prior to that, let's see, the Roman Senate over here in 39 BC um, gives Herod the, temp the area that is the Jews. Uh, so there, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of history in there um, that you can catch. This is interesting, way down here at the bottom, I don't know if you can see that, it says eclipse of the moon just prior to Herod's death. You'll see it, it's right there at the tail end of when Jesus' birth could have been. Um, it lasted for three days. It would have made the night sky uh, very dark. Um, it was a three-day eclipse. I don't know how that works, or a two-day eclipse. But it made it so dark that if there, the star that we talk about that was from Jesus' birth would have stood out amazingly um, with an eclipse like that. Well, it happened just before. It was around his time. So we, we're talking a window of time. We don't know exactly when any of it happened. We know that he died, yeah, while they were in Egypt. Uh, the eclipse was around that time, but that would have made that star because the, the wise men don't show up until Jesus is over too. So there, there, yeah, there's a lot of events that circulate. We're not sure how it all fits together. Um, there's the storybook, you know, Christmas story and all that. I mean, that's why you get manger scenes with uh, the wise men showing up and all that. And uh, yeah, it doesn't quite fit history. Uh, you can see here, the next real event that we know anything of is, uh, at least from Luke, is Jesus traveling with his parents from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It's somewhere around 9, 9 BC, or 9 AD, rather. Uh, most significant, though, in telling is Caiaphas. He's the high priest that Jesus has to deal with. You can see that he reigned as high priest for 19 years. From 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. The overlap between him and the guy right underneath of him, Pontius Pilate, who was only in Jerusalem for 11 years, 26 A.D. to 36 A.D. There's only a, you know, there, there's only a few years that everything lines up that could have been, uh, which is really interesting when you start looking at it and start calculating those odds. Yeah. Um... Yeah, the rest of them you can just look at. They're just interesting details of his life on a timeline. Uh, 
this is what's going on uh, in there in that period. Mostly this one here, Rome, the Roman Empire, 27 BC to 476 AD. Uh, they've declared peace, and if there isn't peace, they send their troops in and make it peaceful, one way or the other. Dead people are very peaceful. <laughs> but that, so there isn't a lot of upheaval in the world either, though. China, the Far East, is being consolidated under imperial rule. The Far West is consolidated under Roman rule and under Roman decree. There's peace throughout the, the Near East and Middle East and all of Europe. Um, all in all, the world is in a, in a very strange place in, given that the ancient world was always full of dictators and despots and all of that. It's one of the few time periods where it is actually very calm. Comment, question. I love the backgrounds. So Jesus had to be at least 30, but he couldn't have been more than 40. Yeah, exactly. We, we have a, we, that, that's why everybody chooses 30. Um, there are other social reasons um, when one turned 30 in Jewish society, you were now considered, whatever your trade was, you would have been considered uh, a master by that point. You would have been uh, your apprentice in your early teens, um, somewhere around 13, 14, somewhere in there you would have started your apprenticeship depending on what your, what your um, occupation was going to be. Somewhere around 18, 19, 20 years old, you would be considered a journeyman and you would set out to, you know, make your stake in the world, depending on what it was you did. If your parents' business wasn't what you were going into or something of that nature, you may have to travel to another town or some such in order to practice, to work. Um, Jesus himself, his father was a carpenter or a builder, it says. Uh, it was about a half a day's journey up the road was a city that Herod was having built and they were employing all sorts of builders. It's likely Jesus traveled up there. Um, actually, where's that map? Oh, there's a, there's a little map in the, in the back of your thing. It's behind the uh, screen here where he's from the Galilean uh, thing. Geneset is... Uh, Likely was a town that was being built by Herod. It's just up the coast. Uh, and they were employing all the builders they could find and probably would go there, work for a couple of days, and then come home uh, and that sort of thing. The, um, so he probably traveled. And he was probably, and as you start thinking about his Galilean ministry... He seems to have been known in those areas. Likely he went from town to town wherever there was work to build as a, as a journeyman. I mean, we, we understand how that worked um, and would have been a craftsman until his uh, start of his ministry when he travels down to John the Baptist and is baptized. Anyway, all of that to say, yeah, 30 was a magic number. In Jewish society. Other comments or questions? Lots of cool stuff. 
All right, then let's actually get into our lesson now that we've only got about 15 minutes. All right, Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 17. Somebody go ahead and read those for us. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And a whole, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and make the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Bless you. Thank you. All right, thank you. Okay, so here we are. We're in the preparation for the ministry of Jesus, part of this, needless to say. Um, we see that this prayer is going to be answered. Now, this is significant. Zechariah is an old man. He's a priest. Likely, this is his first and only chance to serve in the temple in this manner. There were so many priests and so many... Um, workers that they did it on rotation and they only worked in the temple twice a year when their group, their, their clan's turn came up, they would draw lots to see who would perform what duties. Some days he may have been uh, the teacher out in the portico. Um, they would be out there and they would, they would stand and teach the law and explain it and answer questions and deal with that. Some days he may have been the butchers, the guys slaughtering the, the oxen, the sheep, the doves, and they're offering the sacrifices. There would have been the guys who stood as the, um, you know, making sure, inspecting the animals for blemishes or clothing or people if they had the sickness and stuff. They had to come and present themselves to a priest. So he would have been one of those guys who did that. To, they, they only went in the holy place twice a day to offer incense. So it's probably around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when he would have likely have gone in. He would have carried a small shovel full of coals that came from the um, altar out front, the brazen altar where all the sacrifices were being made. They get some of those coals and they bring it in and they put it on the incense altar and then they would get the incense and sprinkle it on and it would make this aroma. It was, a, you know, it's like a four or five minute job at most because he probably had to sweep out the ash from earlier from the incense that had been burned in the morning. So you got to clean that up. 
put the new coals on, do that, and then there was, you would pray. There was likely a prescribed prayer offering um, prayers for the people. That's why they're all standing out there to see if God answers. I mean, there, so there was probably a prescribed prayer. Likely, Zechariah was adding his own prayer to it as well as he's there. I mean, uh, you know, his wife is uh, barren. This is considered God's judgment on them for something. Uh, at least that's the thinking of everybody else and all that. And all of a sudden, he's in the holy place. Only one priest would have been in there at a time. Another priest would have come in at some point to trim the wicks on all the lamps. There's a whole lamp stand in there, and those have to be refilled, and that's probably twice a day. There's the table of showbread. That gets replaced every morning. Um, and so there's only possible of three guys, and it was his turn in the Holy of Holies for this. He's surprised. Who is this that has broke into the holy place of the temple? Um, and we see the angel makes this declaration to Zechariah. Now, some of you I know have uh, King James Bibles, uh, and it's Zacharias with an I-A-S on the end instead of an A-H. There are textual differences in the name um, that are used in the King James and its variants. Whereas the CSB, NIV, ESV all use Zechariah. They're all different spellings, English spellings of the same name. So don't be confused by that. Um, we see the angel of the Lord declares to John that, is, or that his name will be John, that this baby that's going to come. Uh, he has... The angel has, um, there's purpose to this. This child has a, uh, a purpose. It's not even conceived yet because she will have a child. She isn't pregnant. And we're going to see something in a minute in verse 15. Um, but it's all, this is all future tense. So Elizabeth isn't pregnant. This is all going to happen um, and all that. And we see that he will be like Elijah. And prepare the people for the Messiah, the, the coming one. That's his job. And so a prayer is answered by Zechariah uh, for his wife. Because really it was considered for the, the woman. He wouldn't be necessarily the one that's causing the problems. It was considered the woman's problem that there weren't children. And uh, yeah, we know how that goes. Verse 15, though, if you are looking for a more definitive proof that an unborn baby is a full person, to make that argument, verse 15 is a very strong argument for it. For he will be great. This is an angel of the Lord, and he's talking about a child that doesn't, isn't even born yet. But he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Before the unborn child is born, he will have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that when Mary comes with Jesus, the baby in Elizabeth, 
knows the Savior. So the, the, the idea, and there are a lot of Christian groups out there that, that you know, are pro-choice, uh, that it's just uh, the fetus isn't a child. It isn't. There is no way you can convince me otherwise because if a Holy Spirit can be in that growth, that tumor, whatever they want to call it, uh, then it is not only important, but it must be fully cognizant as a human being, even before it's born. Um, and so if you're looking for uh, evidence of that, well, the scriptures don't say it. Well, actually it does. It's indicated here. The idea is, is that it's a person and that it can be influenced by the Holy Spirit even before birth. Anyway, I'll leave that with you and all that. Comment or question? All right, moving along. Luke chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the, until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. This guy's got some chutzpah. I mean, uh, I love this, this part of the passage. First, he's terrified. And then he expresses doubt. But this is not just... Well, are you sure about that? This is, I don't believe you. This is, uh, he's, I don't even know. I mean, it, he's forceful about it. Because look at this, the way, I mean, I just love Gabriel. Who do you think you are to question me? Now, I don't know if he's standing there. I mean, Zacharias was terrified to the point that Gabriel had to tell him, you know, don't, don't be, it's Okay. And so he is. And then he stands up and he's like, well, who are you to tell me that I'm going to have a child? Do you know how old I am? Who do you think I are? You're not pulling the wool over my eyes. Because Gabriel's like, I'm Gabriel. Dude, I stand in the presence of God. Now that's saying something. The idea here in the Greek is, is that he is the one who ministers at the throne. This is a being who stands in, not just in the presence, but at the throne of the God of the universe. Moses, just being in the presence of his backside, had the Shekinah glory, the glowingness around him. Can you imagine what this being must be who stands in front of the throne to serve God? And the fact that God would send him on the single most important mission in the history of the world to announce the coming of his son to the world. This is the being he chose to give that triumphal announcement to. This has got to be somebody of great import. I mean, you don't send a messenger, just some slave messenger for that. This is the guy heralding the coming of the, of the king of the universe. And here's Zacharias. Who are you to tell me I'm going to have a baby? Yeah, he's 
tone, the angel's tone in, in his words and response indicates that he feels very disrespected. Oh, completely. <laughs> what gave, what uh, Zachariah said to him was disrespectful. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like he probably cursed at him like from back in the 80s. <laughs> Who the bleepity bleep 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 do you think you are telling me I'm going to have a bleepity bleep 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 child? I mean, you know how the 80s were. Can I really have children? <laughs> and he's like, do you know who I am? I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And then he punishes him. Nowhere do we see that in scripture. Do you realize that? Every time angels show up with messages in the Old Testament... The angel's like, well, you can test God. What would you like to happen? How do you want me to prove it to you? Not this guy. This guy must have been so disappointed. Because he doesn't even, yeah, he doesn't offer him anything and says, you're just going to be, you're not going to speak until this is over. Can I have children? And then he's like, you doubt me? And finally, yeah, you're, you're going to know it now because you ain't going to speak from now until then. Uh, I mean, that's, it's just an impressive amount of detail in this exchange. I don't know how Luke got a hold of it. Uh, because really, the only person that was present for this whole interaction is Zechariah. So he must have came, when he finally could speak again, he must have told his wife, others, um, somebody this story, because Luke records the details here for us, um, short of Gabriel coming back and telling Luke. Because, <laughs> I mean, he was obviously there, but we don't have that recorded anywhere. Comment, question. All right, moving along. Luke chapter 21, or Luke chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Somebody go ahead and read those. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them that they were unable to speak. When his time service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for, for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. All right, so here we go. We're going to, the reality scene is what we get here. Um, yeah, he's in there a long time. It should have only taken a couple of minutes to go in and sweep out the, the, the dust, put the new coals, add the incense, make the prayer, and come out. I mean, everybody, it was a daily ritual. It happened every day. They knew how long it took. And Zachariah doesn't come out, and Zachariah doesn't come out, and Zachariah doesn't come out. Everybody's wondering. And when he does come out, it's clear. Now, i got to kind of wonder, because they could see. It's not just that they, he couldn't speak. Not being able to speak would have indicated that God had punished him for some reason. But they don't indicate that. They, they think he's had a vision because he stood in the presence of Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, I've got to wonder if some of that holiness rubbed off on him. And when he walks out, that he's a little glowy. Because he's been in the presence of a being who lives in the presence of God, just as Moses did. Because the people's reaction is, whoa, he's had a vision. Something happened in there that isn't normal. He was in there a long time, and now look at him. 
Uh, we know it began to fade in Moses as we watch as Moses lives. He wears a veil because, A, it frightened the people, but also because it began to dim as the longer it was from the time that he was in the presence of God. So I've got to wonder if we get any of that here as the people see him and he comes out and he's, it's shocking to see that with it. He gets done with his service. He's served because being struck and mute like that, not being able to speak, they would have thought that he had done something and God uh, punished him. I mean, that would have been the normal Jewish response. I mean, we remember going back to David he moved the ark and the guy reached up and touched it um, to stop it from falling and the guy fell dead. So doing the wrong thing in the, in, the, in the holy place was a punishable offense by God. God took offense to those things. If you touch things you weren't supposed to touch or use them in, an, in, in a manner not suited. So for him to come out and be, be mute would have been, okay, what did he do? He must have said something wrong or touch something and God's punishing him, but that's not their response. Their response is he had a vision. That's why I have that idea. Maybe some of the glory that Gabriel was reflecting of God rubbed off on him. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out there for you. We see that Elizabeth ends up pregnant. He finished his service. They didn't drive him away. They didn't send him off as some sort of sinner or whatever and kick him out of camp, which would have you know, been normal. And we see Elizabeth's response. The Lord has done for me in my days uh, when he looked on me to take away my reproach. That gives you an idea of what the people thought of her. That she was, had God's reproach because she didn't have any children. Comment or question? Go ahead. Why, I read here that I'm not sure why she was in seclusion, but why do you think? Like, I mean, she didn't have anything to be ashamed of. No, but my guess is, is that she was concerned. We, 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 the wording is seclusion, but I'm wondering if they weren't just telling anybody, and so she was no. resting. I mean, she's older, not wanting to lose the child. I mean, they had a vague idea of that sort of stuff happening. They didn't have all the medical knowledge that we do today that, you know, preeclampsia, you know, all that, all that stuff. And so hiding away those first five months was likely a way to make sure that the pregnancy stuck. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. I don't think it had anything to do with her because she would want people to know as soon as possible uh, because she's feeling reproach from her family and neighbors and all that. And hey, look, I'm pregnant. Woohoo, gonna have a kid. Uh, nothing wrong with me. God's not mad at me, see? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'm sure that sort of thing. Uh, unlike Mary, who's going to be sent away because she's an embarrassment. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not. I mean, Elizabeth's been married, you know, I, we don't know how old they were. Uh, but my guess would be probably, she's probably in her late 20s, mid 30s, somewhere in there. Um, not having, not had, had any children. They've been married for some time. Other questions? All right. So a couple of things to take away. Uh, God is working to bring about his plan, his redemptive plan. Luke opens this with this story, uh, which is interesting. Uh, he starts with the coming of the one who would come to proclaim 
who Jesus was and that he was uh, the one. He is all the way back to him because it's a miraculous birth in and of itself. The heralding of the king of kings starts with the announcement of his herald. (laughs) So his herald is just as important as he is apparently, or not as important, but uh, it's more important than any normal other person being born. It required a special birth. And Luke starts us there. We see that God has the power to do what he says he will do. He sends Gabriel. You're going to have a baby. Your wife is going to get pregnant. I mean, even Sarah laughed when she heard the idea at 100 years old. She laughed. And uh, that was all funny to them. And here's Zechariah. What are you talking about? This just ain't happening. But God has the power and he does it. And it's as miraculous a birth And then we can live with confidence that God keeps his promises. We see that here. As we begin the story of Jesus in the book of Luke, he starts it off with a promise and that that promise is going to be kept. And then Luke is going to move us forward that Jesus is the promise keeper and that all the things that Jesus is going to tell us are going to happen. We can go back to the very beginning of the book and said, look, God promised this to Zechariah. He didn't speak for nine months. And then, he had the, then his wife had the baby in their old age that they couldn't seem to have. God is that promise keeper. Any comments or questions as we begin this journey through Luke? All right, let's pray. Father, as we celebrate this time of year of the coming of your son, Lord, we see that It was foretold and planned from eternity past. But Lord, that it came with a herald who would come to proclaim him and and an angel to declare his coming. And like so many of us, we can question whether or not it's really going to happen. Lord, we know that you are faithful. You sent your son as proof of your faithfulness. Keep us reminded of that. In your name we pray. Amen.